listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tanil. Tanil, our mum, and Emma, her awesome friend, share deep passion for the snow. They started the podcast together to share all their experiences with you. Between them, they have skied over 95 resorts, both held ski instructor qualifications, lived and worked in resorts, and still spent every hard-earned dollar skiing. They set their lives up around snow travel, and our ski bags are always packed, ready to go. We're certainly not complaining about this, are we? No way. And even better, we get to share all the experiences. Peter Topalovic is a bloody legend within the snow industry. He's helped many of our top winter athletes to the podium. If you thought your day job was a juggle, try fine-tuning programs that affect the pathway of progression for hopeful winter athletes, potentially affecting entire careers, lives and dreams. He talks to us about Genderbine as a growing hub of sport, Topper's Dream, his namesake run at Perisher, and how realistic an athlete's chances are to move forward becoming a professional athlete. How are you going? Good, thank you, Emma. How are you? Yeah, great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. No worries. Love to have you here. Tell us a bit about your background. Um, well, firstly, my my name is Peter Topalovic. I'm commonly known as Topper in the uh, in the industry, and um, um, I work. I was a mobile coach. Uh, started coaching moguls in in 1995 when we started the Winter Sports Club in Perisher, and uh, since then I've been I've pretty much coached from every level, from inter schools to the Winter Sports Club to the national team, and. I've coached the last four Olympic Games. Huge, huge. We are so excited to have you here with us. It's like, um, you know, skiing royalty. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that, Tanil. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of is. It's like, wow, it, it, like the Olympic Games is the epitome of our sport really for, for any right. anyone, any kind of person, whether you're a winter sport person or a summer sport, that's just the highest. And you're the, you're the coach, you know, so that have taken these kids and nurtured them and got them to how they have grown to be an Olympian, you know. So I guess that's a, probably a great place to start is when you've got this kid in your you're a skier, you know, your family's a skier and you've got and you see a little bit of talent and they've been going down for the programs, the winter sport program at Perisher. Where do you where's the next step from there? Like do you keep going to the winter sports programs? How much does it pay apart to go overseas? Inner schools is obviously your first bit. Is is that where you'd start or not? Yeah, look, look, a lot of, you know, the inter-schools competition is kind of like where we see the biggest number of kids, you know, across New South Wales and Victoria where they, they turn up for their regional and state divisions and then they have a national division. And I think there's something along the lines of 10,000 kids that, that compete between New South Wales and Victoria and I think there's a Queensland division uh, I think South Australia's got a small division in there. Well, it, it, it's, it's it's a monster. And, you know, when, when, when I'm overseas working, coaching, and a lot of the other nations, you know, they ask, well, how do you do your talent ID and stuff? And when I tell them about the inner schools event, their eyes, their jaws drop, and their eyes just, you know, you've got that many kids competing at, at that age and that level. They're just like, well, they're so envious of us. Um you know, even the, even the American, for example, like our stronger nations don't have anything anything like that in place. So there's a it's perceived as a really great opportunity as a starting point where 
kids can learn to, you know, compete. Um, but they compete with their, their school their schoolmates, and I think it's an incredible, um, an, an incredible organisation, and and what they've done with it, um, it's a, it's a real credit. But you know, if you said, well, what's the next step? And the next step is is, is simply going into a club program. So, okay, if 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 Parish is your preferred choice, you, you want to join the Parish Winter Sports Club. If Threadbow is your preferred choice of ski resort for the family, or you, you join the Threadbow Mountain Academy, um, you know there's um, there's um, clubs down in Mount Buller, there's clubs in Mount Hotham, there's there's clubs in Falls Creek, and it's that's your next step. That's where you want to go. Some of them are specific for alpine, for mogul skiing, for park and pipe, for border cross, ski across. Yeah, um, there's a lot of that's your that's your next step basically. And that, that's a commitment, isn't it? That's a every weekend. Drive down to the snow. It's And they, you, you've committed to a club, so you commit to every weekend? Yeah. So, um, for example, I think the best way to structure this, this, you can join a part-time program. So there are weekends and school holidays. Oh, yep. It could be a 20, 25-day program as a starting point for the, for the younger ones. And then as they progress through, you start to enter the the full-time programs, so where it's more competitive and more advanced, more high-performance kind of thing, and uh, they could be anything from a, a 50 to 55-day program through the winter. Okay. So what happens that- if you don't have any money at this point but you've got talent? It's a, it's a good question and, and you know, it's, I mean, it's, it, it can cost money to do these programs. They can be expensive, but, look, at the end of the day, it's, you know, when you add up the cost of the program and, you know, travelling down every weekend, it's it's not a cheap exercise, but, you know, it, it just is what it is, unfortunately. And yeah. but, but surprisingly, there are a lot of families and a lot of kids that, that join these clubs every year and do a fantastic job. And, you know, the mums and dads who do all the driving down every weekend, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I take my hat off to them. It's, they're, they're pretty passionate and they love the sport and, yeah, it's 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 just what it, it just is what it is. Yeah, exactly. And if your kid loves it, you you're going to support it too, isn't you it? You do whatever it takes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, I, it is, whether it's football, whether it's moguls, whether it's golf. Do you think that's like a big thing in kids? It's, it can't be just the parent that wants the that wants it for the kid. It has to be the kid, the child that wants it more than the parent. Is that I a difference? That, yeah, that's a really good point. It's you know, I, I'm I'm a dad. And I've had two kids come up, come up, grow. They're not kids anymore. But well, what do you want to do? It says whatever they want. I supported them what it is. And and my daughter, she didn't want to ski. She didn't want to do competitive moguls. Um, but my son, on the other hand, he loved it, and he did competitive moguls. And it was about supporting him, whatever he wanted to do. And if he wanted to do, if my son wanted to be an equestrian rider. Maybe I wouldn't have supported that because that's probably a bit expensive. That's big money. <laughs> soccer or football, he played yeah. rugby union. I had to learn rugby union and yeah. to support him. If I, I didn't didn't know the rules exactly with rugby union, but I learned that, and and that's just what you do as a dad. Yeah, you do as parents, yeah. whatever they want to do, you support them. It is true, you know, and and kids do they do have to be the ones that want to do it because it doesn't matter. I mean, I, you, I drag my kids kicking and screaming, well, one of them to netball, and I'm like, 
Okay, stop living your dreams through her. <laughs> yeah, and until such point, and I think it's great because you're, you're right too, and at some point a kid says, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, okay, well, if, if that's that's your call. Yeah, so. so it's like, well, what else do you want to do then? You know, so so but, once you've made it, sorry. So once you've made the kids have made it to the top of the in schools and they're winning the inter schools, yeah. the next is is overseas and a big part of their development from that age. I mean, obviously, you know, top ten. Are you looking at top ten kids in in schools? Are you looking at top like to to go? Okay, let's. I've identified those kids. How yeah. do we become? And who decides? Who decides? Yeah. Okay. So look, I guess. Um, at that club level, I think um, if you want to go to that next level, I think it's really important that whilst they're doing Winter Sports Club or, or Mountain Academy or Race Club, yep. um, doing an overseas program is important. Yep. Um, and, you know, Australia does provide programs in a number of disciplines where you can travel overseas and, and, and those links can be um, directed through the clubs so okay. that there are coaches that, don't just work in, in Perisher or Threadbow or Buller or, or Falls Creek, for example. Um, they have coaches that work overseas and, and run programs overseas. So yep. um, if you really wanted to get more information about that, the first place I would recommend is directly to Snow Australia, who is the national sporting organisation. Yeah. And you can make inquiries to Snow Australia and they have all the information there on their website whether it's ski or snowboard, all types of racing, there they can direct you to, you know, my son wants to be a snowboarder um, or my daughter wants to be an alpine racer, go to Snow Australia because they can then direct you and give you the options of where you can go and, and what you want to do. So that kind of in, in, in that realm is where I would recommend families okay. go first. Yep. And then it's that is that is kind of the pathway there where it's, you know, in the Australian domestic season, the Northern Hemisphere international season. And then it, essentially from there, it's attending events and races and club races and, yeah. and you know, FIS races. And that's kind of where athletes get identified to that next step if they want to make development national teams and then, of course, the national team. Yeah, okay. So is it off their own bat to go and go, okay, right, I'm, I feel like I'm good enough, my family's going to support me, I'm going to go get my FIS points? Yeah. Is that kind of, and then when they go, okay, yeah. I've got enough, then you guys go, wow, okay, these guys are really great at it. Let's look into them a little bit further. That's right. And, yeah. and, and again, that kind of falls under the umbrella of Snow Australia. So yep. they have um, individual discipline committees and coaches involved and and you know, I think they do a really good job. It's, yeah. it's like I know they do a great job. The winning gold. <laughs> well, and I think you've got to put it in perspective too because, you know, you look at the talent pool that the Russians or the Japanese or Canadians or Americans have and their talent pool is huge. Yeah. Our talent pool isn't as big. Mm -hmm. um, we do, I mean, we do, I think, I think a good way to, our, our motto is we do more with less. Yeah, love it. Love I, think, it. I think that's a great, great way to perceive it because, you know, whilst we don't have a lot of talent compared to the rest of the world, it's no different in summer sports. You see the Summer Olympics and, and how well we do in yeah. Summer Olympics. And we don't have, compared to the other nations, we're, you know, we're the battlers, we're the fighters. And, and our Australian front, isn't it? Our Australian never give up attitude. 
that's right. Readiness. Yeah. So do you ever see people when they get to those uh, race level that really shouldn't be there that are a bit, they're, they're not, they should, yeah, they don't really belong at that level? Or is it weeded out by then? I think it's more, well, here's the best way to put this. You, you, have, you have all these kids that come through these club programs as an example, and not everyone is competitive. Not everyone wants to be competitive. I think that's a really good way to unpack this because, you know, there are a lot of kids who just love skiing or they love snowboarding, and, and that's what they want to do. They just want to participate in that. And they get so much enjoyment and pleasure um, and just just participating in a great program and learning how to ski or snowboard better, and but there are some that are, that, that want to be competitive too. So I think you've got to look at it through two different lenses as the as as the type of athletes we have, and it's you know I think it's about the experience. I think it's a really important way to to deliver that message because you know not many people get to do that. Not many not many kids get to travel overseas and train and compete. It's a it's a lifestyle thing, and I think families look at it that way too. That yep. um, that whole experience that when they get older, they can look back on their younger days and go, "Wait, wow, how cool was that?" You know, we got yep. to train with the mobile team at the Winter Sports Club. We got to train and compete with the Thread by Race Club, and you know, and it was a great experience they had. But you know, there is there are periods where competitive athletes go through the pathway, and they get to a point and say, "Hey, you know." This is not for me anymore. You yeah. know, it's it's hey, mum and dad, I, you know, I've had a great time doing this. I've really enjoyed it, but uh, I've, I've I've got another challenge in life. I want to go to university. You want to, you yeah, know, there's yeah. life after ski. Yeah, um, I think is a good way of putting that. So that's that's the way I'd measure it. Mm, yeah. Um. So I get. I grew up in the um. La, to, la, what's his name? Bomba La Tomba Bomba and the Bomba Tomba Alberta Tomba. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and and alpine skiing was where it was at. You had right. to, you had to race downhill. You had to have the stiffest boots. You had to, you know, like that's kind of that's the nineties, you know, eighties, nineties for me. Yeah. They had to be two tens, and you know, yeah. how did like? Obviously, we can't make our talent be as good as the overseas guys because we don't have the mountains for that. So, was it a strategic call by you, kind of going, okay, we can make a mogul? hill um because we've got the right gradient which we'll talk which i guess we'll talk about that in a minute your topper's dream but was it a conscious effort to the australian committee to go okay let's focus on these sports that we could like a a moguls and uh border cross all those skills that we can actually do on our australian hills a matter of going going with what you have yeah Yeah, we've got some amazing alpine skiers out there now well i I think perspective on that is that You know, we have some incredible alpine races and we have had in the past yeah. some incredible, I mean. They take my hat off. <laughs> Alex Tegel is an Olympic medalist. Well, I mean, but, you know, she, we, we've got some incredible, I, I mean, my good friends, John O'Brower and Craig Branch and, and you know, they were incredible athletes. You know, they were yeah. top 30 in the world yes. at the World Cup. I mean. You know, in, in, in alpine racing, top thirty in the world, you're you're a rock star. Absolutely, in, in yeah. the northern hemisphere, it's yeah, it's 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 a tough one to crack. And yeah. you know, these guys, you know, again, were when 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 we when the mogul program, as an example, came into the N Swiss 
um, when we did it with the national team and, you know, watching AJ Bear and oh, yeah. when these mogul athletes came in, you know, and they're standing there watching these guys train in the gym and, and watch these guys skis. They are master technicians. They are, yep. you know, in my eyes, I was just I was just ignored by how well these guys trained and how hard they trained and how passionate they were. So, you know, we have great athletes. We, you know, yeah. we've proven on the world stage we can get results in, in, in alpine racing. We've proven we've proven it in moguls, we've proven it in half pipe, you know. Yeah. I mean, we look at look at Tora Bright, look at Scotty James. Yeah. I mean, we've got the world's best Olympic medalists in in half pipe. Half pipes. Yeah. yeah. At the moment we don't even have a half pipe in Australia. So yeah, know, we do more with less. There's that motto again. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to, you, our aerial program, you know, we, um, a lot of those, a lot of those athletes will live and train overseas on the facilities over there so that um, they can become world's best. So we have to follow, we have to chase, we have to travel a lot to, to get on those facilities and train. So for the Alpine guys, the example, a lot of those guys and uh, guys and girls spend a lot of time traveling in the Northern Hemisphere winter, yeah. living and training in those facilities. So Yep. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. I mean, the opportunity's there. We're, yeah, we're yeah, the opportunity's there, which is so, amazing. Tell, um, talk to us a little bit about uh the athletes just coming back from the Northern Hemisphere just now. Uh well we've got the athletes uh, arriving home as we speak. Um our amazing mobile athletes arrived back into uh, uh, Sydney on last Friday. Maddie our, and Laura. Yeah, and they're now sitting at home quarantine. Our border cross athletes, you know, they've done an amazing job this year, all of them. Um, the border cross athletes, I think they get in Friday night. Uh, our park and pipe athletes are in Switzerland as we speak. They're at their last World Cup this weekend and then they're home next week. So that's the bulk of our athletes um, who have, you know, essentially been overseas up to five months, some of them. Yeah, and how do you help them overseas? Like, because you you couldn't be there this year. Are you normally with them? Is there a team around them? Yeah, so um, the athletes and coaches, you know, some of them, they pretty much started leaving, you know, some of them back in October um, were leaving overseas. Um yeah. I know um, Sammy Kennedy Sim and her coach Sean Fleming left at the end of October, and they were over there pretty early. And um, you know, this year is a little bit different because um, you know we're in a pandemic, and it was very difficult, and you know, for the athletes to even be allowed to leave the country, it was really, really challenging. Yeah. Um, but we had to really do a lot of work in the background, and there was quite a few people. And it was just about making sure that our athletes were prepared for overseas. Um, we were limited with who we could allow to go overseas because of restrictions. But, you know, and it pretty much started as soon as the pandemic rolled out 12 months ago. Yeah. Our medical team and our organisations really put our heads down and thought, well, the Olympic qualification year has started. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that's a piece where it's like, well, uh, July 1, um, last year was the beginning of the Olympic qualification finish. So it starts. So every World Cup event and, 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 and World Championships from there through until the end of January next year in 2022, all those events um, 
athletes attend to acquire points yep. to qualify for the Olympic Games. So um, that in itself was a massive undertaking. And in order to prepare our athletes for overseas, uh, it started in, in Jindabyne and Perisher and Threadbow last year, for example, where, you know, we basically set up a bubble at our home base at the Sport and Rec Centre in Jindabyne where we had the athletes living, um, training, um, and, 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 and on snow and off snow in the gym, acrobatics centre, and the COVID-safe protocols that we put in place were quite strict and confronting. You know, it's just like, you know, hey, guys, if you guys are even fortunate, if we're even lucky enough to get you guys overseas, this is how you're going to live and protect yourselves. Yeah, well. and, and it was just an amazing job at the how what everyone has done to pull together. We've been monitoring the athletes daily overseas. Yeah. Um, it's events are getting cancelled, um, and the, and then they're getting rescheduled, which is just a nightmare. And, and that's in, in different itself. countries. Then, isn't it? I think the perspective is when if they've got to move from this country to this country, and to get there, you've got to go through that country. And then restriction, entry restrictions change every 14 days. Every country, every government, their restrictions are changing. So the paperwork and the rules are changing. And it's, it's, it was, I've never been this busy in summer. (laughs) Yeah, it's normally (laughs) enough. I wish I was back. I wish I had gone back coaching. It would have been easy. (laughs) Yeah, Um, pounding it out. No. (laughs) So So I guess um, it's probably good to note at this time that your your role right now is that you're not coaching anymore but you're the program coordinator yeah so after Pyeongchang I retired from coaching I wanted to spend more time with my family um, and I'd already spent too much time away from them in the, in the first place but um, I was it was time to uh, tra- I you know it was time to move away for me um, that was my choice I've now work in a um uh, and a capacity where I'm the coordination role where I'm overseeing all the programs when they're based here in Australia. So in Jindabyne in particular, so organising the training hill space and and the agreements with the resorts and um you know Jindabyne Sport Recreation Centre, all the training facilities are up to scratch, seasons passes, coaching, um you know athlete screenings and support. It's coach support. It's quite a big role. It's a massive role. It's a massive role. And I guess you are definitely the right person to do it because you've been, you lived and breathed it through four Olympics and the, the years before that, really. So you, you can guide them in the best, you know, you know what is expected of them, you know how yeah. to help. But yeah, it's certainly. Yeah. And, and it's a great, you know, I, I feel as if, you know, it's a great job because whilst I'm not traveling overseas anymore, uh, I'm still making a difference. I still want to be able to help athletes, I still want to help coaches. Love that. And support them as best as I can. So I'm very fortunate that I have such a great job. Yeah. So were you involved in the um, getting the forefront of getting the um, airbag training facilities to Jindabyne and, you know, and, and also the Brisbane? That's exciting. I'm a Queenslander. So to hear yeah. that they're <laughs> yeah. getting some facilities up in uh, Brisbane, it's like, yay, we've got a beautiful, like the weather's great up there. Get the water, <laughs> get the aerial going. <laughs> and what a, what a great time to be in your role as well with all this investment going on in Jindabyne. Maybe talk a bit about all that. 
Well, I think I think well, let's start with the the, the water ramp in Brisbane because this is this is a great one. Um, when you talk about those aerial athletes and the mogul athletes who use water ramps a lot, I mean it's it's a critical training tool. Learning to do all these tricks single, I mean the aerial guys are doing up to triple flips with quad twisting trip quad quad twisting triples. Um, the mogul guys are doing backfalls and off-axis D-spins and a water ramp is purely designed so that you can do hundreds and thousands of those jumps and perfect them on water and not injure yourself. Yep. Um, and then when you're at a certain point where that skill or that specific trick is you've got that down packed, then you transfer it to snow. So that reduces the, the injury risk for those athletes. Now, the aerial program, for example, I mean, they've basically been living in Park City, Utah, um, training at the Utah Olympic Park on, on their water ramp facility over there. And the sacrifices and time away from home, the cost involved, but, you know, just to use those facilities isn't cheap either because we're, we're not the national team, we're not the US team, we're yeah. the Australian team. So it does cost a little bit more. And, and fortunately, um, the Olympic Winter Institute, and in particular, Jeff Henke, um, who is we consider the godfather of winter sports. Uh-huh. Jeff was able to, we've spent many, many years trying to get this water ramp built uh, in Australia for our, our aerial athletes. And what a journey that was. It was, it was originally designed to be built in Chandler. And, um, and then we had some, we faced a few roadblocks there. And then there, there was, there was a plan to rebuild it in Lennox Head. And then there were some roadblocks wow. there. And then, you know, to Jeff Hankey's credit, um, he never stopped fighting for that facility. And now it's back in Brisbane. Now it's finished. And since we've had it, uh, it was it was built and finished and completed um, at the beginning of September last year. Um, we had a few delays in COVID, unfortunately, and um, the actual aerial girls were in Mount Buller training at the beginning of um, last winter. Then shut down when there were some challenges with the border restrictions and and Victoria closing down they moved to to Jindabyne and did a ski camp here in Jindabyne and um you know that was that was that's another story in itself but (laughs) the resilience of those girls you know waiting and patiently for the water ramp to open and then Brisbane it was and you know they're behind schedule and you know you talk about Danny Scott and, and and Abby Wilcox and their coach, David Morris, who, and, and Laura Peel um, herself all had different challenges around preparing because they need access to the water ramps. They need to do X amount of jumps per year um, to before they can begin training those jumps on snow. So when that opened, it was like a race. They've got to, they've got to get their numbers up and they, before they left at you know, Christmas to go overseas. Oh, wow. So, you know, when you think about how underprepared, you know, our athletes were, you know, you look at Danny Scott, I mean, World Championship medals, World yep. Cup victories, you know, under duress, underprepared, still came through. So another, you know, just another. They just don't get enough credit, do they? Yeah, they're, they're incredible <laughs> athletes. Like, yeah, yeah. The thing about Brisbane too, and I think this is a really good one, when the water ramp was projected to be built up in Brisbane, there was a lot of a lot of the community were like, oh, why is it being built in Brisbane? Like, it should be built in Jindabyne where it belongs and, and it's, I think, I think the perspective on that is for everyone to realise is that 
The purpose of building the water ramp in Brisbane allows our athletes to train year-round in, in subtropical climate. Yep. Um, all the other water ramps on the planet that are in the Northern Hemisphere are all built and designed in ski towns. Um, therefore, in winter, they're covered in snow and they're closed. Yeah. So they can only train on those six months a year, for example. You know, it was a real, real genius idea that, that and this is what people don't realise, is that um, nowhere in the world can you train on a water ramp year round. Yeah. So that exactly. gives us an advantage. That yeah. gives us that, That's the edge that our athletes can stay at home and train year round and then they can basically just whip over to do their competition season, come back, competition season, come back. And that is a huge advantage to us. So we're actually now at a point where there are going to be a lot of teams from around the world that are going to want to come and use our facility because they can't use it. Yeah. They can't use their own, see? So yeah. it was a genius idea. Yeah, money, money earner for us. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, well medal advantage for us, the most yeah. important yeah. And middle and, advantage means money for us, kind yeah. of, you know, when you yeah, win. Well, it's, you know, it's good for the economy when teams come out. And, yeah, um, the amount of teams that, that, that travel to Australia from around the world is incredible um, because of our world-class training facilities. We've got we've got best training facilities in the world. The, the airbag, um, which I'll, I'll allude to now, is, you know, Snow Australia, and the New South Wales Institute of Sport and the Olympic Winter Institute, you know, have were able to really pull together as a, as a unified front. And um, we've got funding now for this airbag facility being built in Jindabyne. And it's, um, we're at the halfway point. Uh, the Earthworks is just on a massive scale. And our goal is to have a, a high-performance airbag and a progression bag so that kids from the community and the pathways, they start on the progression bag and work their way to the high-performance bag. Um, now, that we're expecting that to be finished, being built um, in August. Um, we've had a few delays this year, just would you, you wouldn't believe it, because of all the rain we've had. We've had yeah. so much rain this year. Um, well, fire last year. We were, yeah. we were fighting off fires over the back of the Snowy Mountains last it's year. And, it's never wow. ending, is it? Yeah. So... And, the, and for people's understanding around, well, what is an airbag versus what is a water ramp? Well, it's the same outcome, but instead of landing in water, these guys are landing on a pillow cushion. Okay. A pillow cushion on steroids. Now, <laughs> these these airbags are used um, around the world. And um, I think a good way of perspective is those motocross riders that do yeah. all the flips and twists on, 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 on their motorbikes, yeah. they use airbag landing. They, they, they train on a landing bag. An airbag exactly the same. So this is how durable these 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 bags are. Yeah. But with the airbag specifically, it is has a real designated focus towards the disciplines in park and pipe. So for the snowboarders and the skiers that are doing you know big air, they're doing slope style disciplines. Yep. Um, and the idea is is that you know the in runs, the the, the surfaces coming in and the ramps. All same same setup of material and design. The ramps are a different shape. Mogul ramps and aerial ramps are more inverted, and where these are more, where the park and pipe ramps, they're more rampy, not so kicky. Yeah. And this facility then means that the snowboarders, our snowboarders and skiers, they can take off backwards. They can take off natural, unnatural. They can take off in many different ways and positions. They can land unnatural 
uh, switch or front or back, and they can do all their multiple off-axis tricks without hurting themselves. Yeah. And, again, that's the same outcome where our athletes will use these facilities to train hundreds and thousands of jumps to perfect them um, in, a, in a sport that is continually evolving. I mean, yeah. Are you surprised at yeah. Are you surprised at, like from you've been in the industry for a long time and you've seen moguls progress? Obviously, you've been a part of that, yeah. part of coaching this. Are you surprised at what the kids are pulling off now and what they're trying? And is I mean, are they just going, right, I'm gonna have a go at this, or is it all okay? Let's not have a go at this, let's see if we can do this first. There's obviously a massive process, but do they just do you just let them have a freestyle session every now and then and see what they can do? <laughs> well, and, and you're absolutely right, because you know that. The sport of snowboard and ski park and pipe, for example, uh, it's evolving. Every year someone's coming up with a new trick and a new way of doing it. And when, you know, it was I can, I can a similar scenario when they started to allow inverts in mogul skiing. I mean, it used to be illegal. If you did a backflip in moguls, you know, you were red carded and kicked off the production. <laughs> and when that happened in the... You know, that was the late 90s, early 2000, you know, those that era in mogul skiing where we were doing off-axis, we were doing front flips, back flips, back falls, back double falls. It was like, where is this going? And it was a really exciting period in the sport to watch it evolve, and I'm watching exactly the same happen in Park and Pie. Yeah. And, you know, it's like it's amazing. It's like all the world goes back to their home countries and train, for their off-season and low-season, and then they all meet back together at the World Cup Tour, and then all of a sudden someone out of nowhere is, does, does this specific trick, and it's like, oh, my God, that's the next level. Yeah. And then it's, <laughs> it's chasing that trick, and then someone else comes up with another trick. And, yeah. you know, you look at those skiers and snowboarders in the half-pipe, and it's just an incredible sport to watch. The X Games is kind of important because do they throw out the tricks at the X Games and then kind of refine them? for world champions and olympics or no it doesn't oh look there are, you know there are strategies that yeah. the athletes <laughs> like to have yeah you know and all, all sports have those strategies yep. you know um aerials will have strategies moguls has strategies this person has, has got this trick in the bank it's going to wait until it's ready for the actual olympic year yep. to blow the judges away to get the wow factor yeah, you know, it, it happens. It happens in all the sports. Um, yep. And um, but you're right. It can be specifically bought out at X Games, or it can be out of nowhere. You know, the judges know this athlete or, or this guy or this girl, and you know, these are the tricks that she does. And all of a sudden, whoa, we've never seen you do that before. And it's like, wow, how good was that? So it can actually be an advantage. Yeah. When we um when we talk about the older athletes, you know, your John O'Brows and. When even the next generation, the Tora Bright, and then comparing the young ones now. Dale Beg smith <laughs> What do you see that's different there? Because I know when we go to, you know, us with young kids, we go to all the sports and all the sports start so young now, so early. You know, you're not doing your rugby union starting at 12, you start at 4. Um, and by the time they are 12, they are very technical and it's, very competitive. How how can you compare the older athletes that are so skilled to these days? Do you have to be so much more by the same age type thing? Uh, good question. Look, yeah. um, 
I think in terms of specific parts of a discipline. So, for example, you know, I'll, I'll use mobile skiing as an example. I think it's a good one. It's, it's the acrobatic side of it. So when you're doing, you know, back tuck, back full, back lay, front tuck, back double full, um, those tricks and those skills, you need to have that base at a younger age. Um, and, you know, it, it's something that requires kids to start doing gymnastics, trampolining, uh, or diving, you know, like as, a, as, a, as, a, as an acrobatic sport. And if you have an acrobatic, acrobatic base, it does give you an advantage, you know, later in life in, in multiple sports, not just winter sports, but or mobile skiing or, you know, aerial awareness <clears throat> is almost like, in, in my opinion as a coach, that aerial awareness, it's, it, it helps you in skateboarding, it helps you in surfing, it helps you in so many different sports, BMX. And, you know, I think that if you start that as a young age, you know, an advice to, to parents if they, you know, you, sh- you should be doing multiple things, I, I guess, where I'm coming from. So mm. acrobatic base will help you with mobile skiing down the track um, and it'll help you execute tricks more consistently and quicker, less chance of injury. Um, but, you know, I've always said to you know, all the all the families and parents, it's just like, well, you know, you guys want to focus on mobile skiing, just purely mobile skiing. Well, you know, you need to be doing other sports as well. You yeah. need to be doing gymnastics. You need to be doing trampolining. You know, you need to be doing a team sport. Um, I think you need to be doing a, another team sport, whether it's football or whether it's netball or, or, or something like that. It's really? I believe That's that doing multiple sports is better for you than just doing the one. And as the kids get older, they can drop off and determine which way. They might not like skiing. They might want to become a footballer. They might want to become a gymnast. You know what I mean? Though having options that specific to one sport helps, but it also keeps options open as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, that is a really healthy way of thinking about it. I've got kids that are 16 and 14, two girls. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty good across the board at everything. And they could have chosen to go touch football, let's just use that for one example, but they had to only do touch football. They weren't allowed to go and do their netball or they weren't allowed to go on the ski holiday with us. They weren't. So I, I praise that way that you guys are thinking because that's really great. Yeah. That's because kids may not, they, they miss out on other opportunities and other, you, to really know that they love that sport, you know, like you've got to do other sports to know you love that sport and go, yes, that's where I'm going to commit myself. I'm going to be the best at that. and here's another way of looking at it um, that I learned through my journey of talent ID and development was you know when I first started coaching back in you know back in the mid 90s it was like right well you know and I wasn't the most experienced coach I was an ex-athlete I wasn't a very good athlete Um, I was a good skier I just wasn't a good competitor but um yeah. Oh, well, I was okay at skiing. But yeah, um, amazing. I, it was like, well, I'm going to find the most talented kids. You know, who's got the most talent? I'm going to focus on them. And they're the ones that are going to take it to the take us to the promised land. And throughout that journey of coaching, um, through my career of coaching, I always looked at it as I evolved. Well, hang on a minute. You know, we don't have a lot of those talented kids. We have not necessarily the most talented. So it was about designing. I, I wanted to build a team, an environment where they had a great experience. They learned something 
And when they leave that sport, they're going to look back on that moment in their careers and in their life that what a great experience that was. That was some of the best years of my life. So that was kind of like my focus. But, you know, you need talented kids to, to you know, run to get through the pathway. But And that was my initial thought, right? So as I progressed through that, that learning period, that learning curve of talent ID, I started to notice the kids that I wasn't noticing as much. As, as you're learning this, your trade, you start to see things whilst that kid is certainly not the most talented, but his intangibles or her intangibles, mm. their organisation skills, their desire, their, their attention to detail. Determination. And yeah, you know, like it's, that started to appear to me. And, you know, I look at, you know, Brody Summers is currently ranked number five in the world for, for Australia in mogul skiings. And, and he didn't start skiing until he was 14. There you go. You know, yeah. and so he would get up on the water ramp. I'll never forget the first time he did his first D-spin on water ramp. And he was just nailing himself in the water. Just <laughs> what I watched, this kid just kept coming back up and he just kept trying and he kept trying. And he kept trying. He didn't want to stop. He was so determined to get that D-spin to his land it to his feet in the water. Yeah. And I was like, wow, look at him go. I mean, he wants this. He has this desire to be better. And then I started, you know, watching Brody. No, I was noticing him annoying the living daylights out of me, saying, Topper, I need more video. I want more video. I want more, more video coaching. I want more. And so you start to notice these kids and their intangibles, and it's like, wow. You know, they start skiing at a late age. Yeah, that's what I was really getting to when I was when I was thinking about the kids that Mm. they don't have the top equipment, they don't have the money, they don't start when they're five. They they're determined. They're twelve years old. They haven't had the opportunity. They haven't seen snow. But they've got backgrounds in athletic in. Yeah, they're coming from other sports, and and it's really nice to hear that you're. Out the corner of your eye, you are noticing those kids too. But and you know, you think of we interviewed Tora last year, and she was talking about when she was growing up, they had terrible gear, you know, for terrible snowboards. They were snowboarding on, and you know, the community really rallied to help fund her trip overseas and things like that. And I just think, gosh, these kids these days are really they have all the top equipment. But what about the other ones? Who is there still room for them? Look, I think, I mean, I, I guess what's what's a great scenario I could use? You talk about Tora coming from Kuma, big family, you know, country kid, country family. Ramon Cooper was another Olympian in mobile skiing in Vancouver. The family weren't wealthy, but, again, the community rally. There, you know, there were alpine races, um, you know, um, Brad Wall, um, Manuela Berthold, um, there were so many local kids in this Jindabyne community, and I'm just going to use the Jindabyne as an example, um, where the community rallies, you know, the, the resorts help, the community helps, the local ski businesses help. They sponsor kids with boots or skis uh, or, or with goggles or glasses. It's only a small, you know, our community, our winter sports community in Australia is only small, but, you know, it's they so all dig deep into their pockets and they don't have to do that. Yeah. Uh, but they're so proud of their, you know, of supporting and helping out. And I think that's an Australian way. Yes. It's just in our DNA. 
Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been to all those fundraisers that we've done at the Lake Gindermine Hotel and, you know, Manuela Berktold was an inc- is an incredible role model of supporting the local talent, you know, helps them out and, and we free this and let's raise some money for that. And it's all about helping those kids get to the Olympics or helping them achieve their dreams. And, yep. you know, there is there is a community out there that cares. The, you know, Ski and Snowboard Australia, the, the national skiing organisation, you know, they're about helping talent and identifying talent. And, and you know, if someone's doing it tough or, or needs help, you know, we all rally together. Well, we, let's get together. There's never a problem. There's only a solution. Yeah. That's our motto. That's another yeah. motto we use. Well, how do we find a solution to this problem? Yeah, this okay. kid is talented. They need help. The family need help. What can we do? I love we'll it. Do the best we can. Find a solution for that. That's it. Yeah. That's good to know. That's, yeah, that's that's awesome. Hey, we just want to ask you as well, well I, there's so much we could ask you about. I really oh, I'm like, we're, beating, <laughs> we're beating each other for questions for you. <laughs> really, really want to ask you before we run out of time about um, Jindabyne being just the investment going into Jindabyne before we ask you about Beijing Olympics. You talk about Jindabyne being a state government special activation precinct and making it more like Queenstown. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting one. Um, (laughs) I'm a a Jindabinian local. Jindabinian. Jindabinian I love it. And um, um, some very exciting news where, you know, the community and the government, the state government, uh, have, have targeted Jindabyne as a special activation precinct. And a lot of people go, well, what is that? And, and you know, from what I understand and attending some of these meetings and, and reading a lot about it online, there's a lot of information out there about it online now, but it's about fast-tracking investment um, to make Jindabyne, you know, a better place in terms of, you know, a year-round, um, a year-round Queenstown, I think is a good way of looking at it. So, you know, they want to really get into the mountain biking, the community, the sport. But, you know, people that come to Jindabai know it's, you know, there's car parking shortages. This is needs fixing, that needs fixing. And the government have, have done a tremendous job to come in with this vision to, to you know, reboot Jindabyne and, and, and identify what needs fixing and how we're going to fix it. And it's all, it's all very exciting what, what, what's going on. So... There's been a lot of talk for a couple of years and now it's kind of like starting to get to the point where some of the plans are coming coming to fruition. It, it'll cool. be interesting this year now that, you know, through because of COVID, one of the positives, I guess, is that Qantas have now re-flying back into Kuma. So from Brisbane, yeah, from yeah. so that'll be quite a nice find out if the, if the actual people want to come from Brisbane to come to Jindabyne as a destination. It might be a nice little like lead way to see, yeah, it's, this is going to, the special activation precinct is going to be viable. Like, yep. you know, um, I yeah, I think it's, um, would there be an airport at Jindabyne? Do you think, is that part of the activation oh, precinct? That, that won't be um, a part. I mean, we've got our little grass strip airport uh, across the road from the sport and rec there that's been there forever. But yeah, I mean, some of the discussions and, and look, the idea, I think it's great. Let's think like, they come, the, the people from South are coming, look, everyone, think blue sky. What's the best? What would be your dream? What would be yeah. what would be the perfect best case scenario? And, you know, there was discussions of an airport down in Beridale. 
but, um, but about well, why don't we build an airport there? Was was a question, right? Well, why not? What are the what are the opportunities there? But we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know if that's actually going to happen or not. But they're getting everyone to think blue sky about well, what's the future hold? Where's where's Jindabyne going? And you know the huge investment with the mountain biking that's going on at the moment. As someone who hasn't, you know, I think there was a period about twenty six years where I didn't have a summer, um, so I haven't been here in Jindabyne for a lot of those summers. Mm-hmm. But in the last couple of years, I've been here now, and it's like the visitation and the people that are coming here. It's it's turning into a year round resort. Um, and you got to you, know? you got to build the facilities, and you can't yeah. you can't let. You know, it'd be tiny if people want to come. Well, and I and I get I get it. There's probably people ag- against it because Jindabyne is such a tiny little town and it's our ski town. We've all been, you know, but I think if the people are coming, you you do have to build the infrastructure for them. You do. So, and and the, the growth rate, Jindabyne is one of the fastest growing towns in New South Wales. I think huh. the average, I think the it's at 4.3% or something. It's huge. And you know, it's it's out of control how fast Unibine's growing now. And I guess a, a great example to use that is, you know, we had uh, we had the Jindabyne Primary School and kids used to go to Cooma to go to high school and then all of a sudden we built a central school and, yeah. and that's outgrown itself already. And there's now a, um, a new high school now going that's going to be built out near the Sport and Rec Centre. Uh, yeah. That was just recently promoted um that's the, the plans and the vision are coming together and it's out there on in the world on social media and stuff now but awesome that's going to be a monster you know that's yeah. we just that that's kind of the perspective where it's the the high school has already grown out outgrown itself and we have to get a new one what about uh do you think what's going to happen with perisher will that be upgraded will that you with that really need some work that whole car park and the car parking situation is the bus terminal <laughs> oh look i i i i don't know <laughs> out of what parish are trying to do i mean i mean parish really want to grow they they you know they want to invest threadbow is the same our resorts really want to do more um there's you know there's obviously you know, we've got to deal with the national park side of it, you know, and that's 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 when it gets really, really difficult and hard. So there's a lot of lot of lot of, lot of there's a lot of moving parts with that. But yeah. I do know the resorts they, they want to grow, they want to do better, and they want to do more. Um, it's just a there's a lot of moving parts to get that to happen. So I hope one day someone who's you know loves skiing in both those resorts. Um, to see them evolve and grow would be would be amazing. But there's a lot of considerations and yeah. challenges around that, and the results are trying. That's that's what yeah. I know. That's, so we need to hear. Yeah. That's what we need to hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, getting back to kind of the resorts, and I guess um, you you are a namesake of a run <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at Perisher, <laughs> Topper's Dream. We've all gone up the ridge chair and gone, oh my god, how are they doing that? <laughs> Um, tell us how you got that. Tell us the story behind. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, when I started the mobile program in 95, yep. um, it was, you know, a vision of mine to build, a, a, to one day find and build a World Cup mobile training course and one day 
and this is still a dream of mine. Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> many I've still got uh, is to have a World Cup, uh, a World Cup moguls event in Australia because that was my passion, mogul skiing, obviously. Yeah. Um, when I was coaching, but um, uh, now it's all sports, of course. Now that you know, you I, love all, I love all the sports. I love all the athletes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, they're my heroes. Some of these, all of them. <laughs> but um, um, back in those days, um, I think what's the best word I can use? Annoying. I was nagging uh, the Perisha CEO at the time. His name was Ashley Blundell. Yes. And uh, he was he's a great man, great man. And um, it was like, Ashley, you know, we we, we, we had the moguls competition. We used to have the Australian Championships at the bottom of the ridge chair on what's called the showboat run. And it was about a 200-metre course, 180 metres. It was flat. And, it, it, you know, it's not really a challenging it was a great mobile course but it wasn't like wow steep long uh for what we really want what i wanted in terms of a mobile course and and i actually said well look topo you know go around and have a look and and find your pinpoint a few locations so uh, a guy by the name of hanno trendle from fis flew out to australia and how and i skied around the resort for days looking at measuring and getting the degree and the pitch of where we could identify areas and and then um, standing at the bottom of the mobile course at, a, at, a, at the national championships, I was just standing there looking up at the course and I looked over to the left and I went, you know what, that's the spot right there. I mean, it was all covered in trees. I went, well, it's low, so on bad weather days, it's not exposed, so you've always got good visibility down there. You've got a, a ridge chair that has a, a full, you know, it's a, a quad chair yeah. Directly behind me, well, there's the link road, so we can drive satellite trucks in there easily enough. And there's our spot. And then I kind of put the pieces together and I went back to Ashley and I and I said, Ash, what about this? This is the spot. And he went, All right, Topper, well, let's have a look at it. And Hanno agreed. And you know, we hiked it. And uh, the mountain manager at the time, Bob Jack, we hiked it and had to count the amount of trees that would have been needed to be removed. And oh, again, gosh. it's a lengthy process in a national park to, you know, to, yeah, to, to and, and. Does a pygmy possibly live there? It was, um, it took eight years oh. of constantly nagging and nagging. And I remember nagging Ashley at the bottom of the course one. I said, Ash, you know, look at that. And he looked at me and said, yes, Topper, I know. Yes, Topper, I know. We're doing our best. We're doing and our that's, best. And that's why I love that it's not called <laughs> Topper's Run. It's called Topper's Dream, taking eight years. <laughs> at one point he looked at me and said, Topper, we're doing our best. And if you don't like it, you can piss off. <laughs> Got it. Got you know, it. You know, you're like, okay, he, he knows. <laughs> That's the line I don't want to cross, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got my back now. I don't want to go around. <laughs> oh, but, um, but, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's such a, as an Australian, and we are winning, you know, amazing medal. We are on the top of the um, podiums for a lot of, you know, the, the, um, uh, moguls at the moment so that that run has like made their dreams come true and you're absolutely right you know and and i guess where it all came to fruition for that course to come into play and for it to be built was was an unfortunate one it was because of those massive bushfires we had in 2013 oh yeah yeah um and, scary period that was i'm over in torino at the Olymp at the olympic test event 
you know, at the World Cup, you know, yeah. my wife's at home with all their personal belongings in the car and the kids in the car. Yeah. You know, Linda's got the kids in the car ready to ready to get out of Jindabyne. I mean, it was scary. Um, and the devastation and, and the lives lost is, is, you know, we should never forget that. It was horrifying. No. no. Um, but the opportunity that came out of that really sad moment um, in, in Australia um, was that um, the, the trees burned in that area and they had them. Um, as a result, you know, we were able to get approval to get the trees removed. Yeah. And um, I couldn't believe my luck when I was in Europe and uh, at the time with the team. And um, I remember Gary Grant, the marketing manager at the time, ring me up right. and said, Topper, your course has been approved. I'm like, oh, what? You're kidding. Yeah, it's happening now as we speak and this is the plan and what we're going to do. And and um, they said, "Oh, we 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 want to we're going to run a, run a competition amongst the staff at Perry to, to give it a name, the run, and and, uh, and oh. that's, that's where it all that's where Topper's dream came from. <laughs> the right person won. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never skied. Well, you're not allowed to ski Topper's run unless I, you're there. But I look at it and go, should I sneak in? Should I sneak in? Like Ben and I'm like, uh, no, I, I'm not going to lose my pass. Oh, my knees." <laughs> I, I didn't want the naming of the course. I just wanted the course for the athletes. Yeah. But well, lucky it wasn't called something else like Topper's Annoying, Nagging or something. Topper's yeah. Terrors. Yeah. <laughs> but look, it, uh, I'm, well, I'm very, we, I'm the other accolade, um, the other accolade you received, the Order of Merit from the New South Wales Olympic Council in 2019. You know, I didn't <laughs> ask for that. I, I was, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great honour. It really is. Yeah. Well, before we go, uh, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be great to do another hour on the Beijing Olympics. Maybe we can um, have you back another time. But yeah. um, you talked to us a little bit about that um, before we let you go. Yeah, look, Beijing Olympics are happening in February uh, next year. And, um, you know, what a... What a year it is! I mean, you know, it's going to be a great challenge. Um, look at we'll be looking at Tokyo Summer Olympics as to how that works this yeah. year. Um, you know, I really do feel for the athletes that have had to put their a lot of them have had to put their careers on hold another year, um, and yeah. how that looks during a pandemic. Um, you know, it's. The Olympic Games is an incredible experience, not just to represent your country as a as an athlete and to win a medal for your country as an athlete, but it's the experience. The whole Olympic experience is is is, is what makes the Olympic event um, memorable for life for your life. And it's going to be a different Olympics. You know, it's going to be different. So um, it's going to be. We'll we'll see how everything goes with Tokyo. Tokyo will go ahead. It'll be different. We know that. Um, and then that'll formulate what success looks like for Beijing. Um, there's a lot going on around that at the moment. Um, we'll get some more. We'll get an update on that uh, at the end of April. We're doing the Olympic um, the shadow team assembly or the, the, the team processing day. So we'll get an update on what that looks like. We've started the planning for that now. Yeah. Um, and look, the athletes have got time more importantly. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's. It's an unknown quantity still, but yeah. you know we're confident that, that you know the Chinese will will run the event. 
Uh, yeah. It'll happen if, if Tokyo's happening. Well, Beijing will happen. The way that's the way I see it. But yeah, true, true. Yeah, because and but what what about the snow in Beijing? Is it are you going to be on fake snow a lot? Yeah. So um, <laughs> we've we've um, we've been to um, the area where the Olympics will be. Um, uh, it's the where all the all the moguls and park and pipe and aerials and harp, you know, and, and board across. That's all going to be in the. Um, uh, and a ski resort called Secret Garden. And it is an amazing area. There's a ski resort that you can see in the distance called Tai Wu. And they're all brand new. It's yeah. they're literally brand new, built from scratch and incredible ski resorts. Um, and they don't get a lot of natural snow there, but it's all snowmaking. Yeah. Um, you know, temperatures are super cold there. Like yeah. the average temperature is negative 20 overnight. Temperature during the day is neg ten. It's, look at where we were in Pyeongchang at Korea. Yep. And look at where China is. And the weather systems all come straight from Siberia, Russia, across Mongolia. And boy, the wind chill is cold there too. It's yeah. It's, it's yeah. negative twenty at night plus wind chill. So it's it's cold. And we've we've had numerous World Cups there already. And Okay. Had our experiences and done our preliminary preliminary work on what to expect and what to prepare for. Um, most of the teams have been there, not all, um, but at least we have the knowledge there that we can share with those other coaches and other programs on what to expect, how to prepare. So yep. we've been doing that side of it, how to prepare the athletes and coaches for some time. Yeah. Logistically, we still have to work out how that you know Olympic village will run and transport and all those sort of things and what the actual courses will look like so yeah massive, absolutely massive it is exciting times though at least you know it's kind of it, it's a hope that the world's going to get back to being a little bit normal yeah we all do hope that we all want yeah. that that's for sure olympics bring that together don't they I, like i'm i'm like such the patriot like when they walk i hope they get to walk into the stadium with a flag we get a flare be- flag bearer because I'm in complete tears every time I see that. <laughs> so I hope that they, for their all their hard work and all their preparation, they get to have that village atmosphere. They get to have, yeah. yeah I, I agree. I agree. That would be in a perfect world. That's that's what we want, and um, and that's what the athletes want. So let's. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite ski resort? Australia or overseas? <laughs> uh, you can go one in Australia, go one overseas. Parish is my home base. That's where I grew up. That's my home. So I have to say Parish is my yeah. home, is, is my favourite. But I do love, Fredbo has things that I love. Buller has things that I love. You know, Hotham Falls, you yeah. know, they're all, they all have something special that, that I find that I really like about them. Overseas, my favourite ski resort in Europe that I love is was Verbier um, mm-hmm. in Switzerland. Oh, my goodness. I had some extreme skiing days there that were mind-blowing that I've still got pictures and memories vivid um, from my time in Verbier. Yeah. And I've been to, all, you know, the Dolomites. Oh, my God, in Italy. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, in North America, Whistler, you know, I used to go there before I was a coach when I was an athlete and, you know, we lived there for the season. We were just ski bums for the season and we skied Whistler Blackcomb every day, you know, yeah. for a few seasons and, it is an amazing place. Um, it's a lot busier now. No. I, I call I call Whistler Disneyland. It's, <laughs> it's, it's Disneyland on snow. 
I mean, it's it's an incredible resort. It is Disneyland. A lot of people yeah. now go when they come to Canada. They're like, uh, we're going to go to Whistler. I say, yeah, yeah, I'll give you three days in Whistler, then come to Sun Peaks, come to the interior so you can kind of, without the crowds now, <laughs> do yeah. your partying and do you, like, because, yeah, it's a, it's yeah. A, at 3 o'clock when you ski down the hills now, it's like slalom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've experienced that. I, but I remember the days when it was downhill coming home. It wasn't slalom coming home, dodging. dodging yes. Home. Same. Back in those days, yeah. yeah, but, yeah. but now it's 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 the dodging. It's a slalom home. <laughs> days. Yeah. Can't ever can't ever leave you, can it? The mountains can't ever. No, leave it you. can't. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chopper. It's been Thank amazing. Um, I could chat to you all day. I'm sure I will. Yeah. <laughs> I will. Yeah, Thank, you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Loving the Snow Life with Emma and Tennille. If you've learned a handy tip or two, then happy days. To catch all our episodes, subscribe on iTunes. It's free. Head over to www.lovingthesnowlife.com.au for more info and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Loving the Snow Life. If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, then email us on our website. Thanks to everyone who leaves a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share our episodes on your social media.